putting on the small uh, thing on the th- small thing as well, yeah? Yeah, I'm recording on both. Okay, great. Let me just uh, introduce the show again. It's Lilim Nishmas, Mafram, Shmuel Ben Avram, Arya Cohen, Chaya Tolabas, Eliezer Mendel Cohen on Book of Yechezkel. Um, last week, um, we got up to the point where we're about to start to do verse 12. Um, and what's being described in this uh, part of the chapter, chapter 4, uh, verses 9 to 17, which done 9, 10, and 11 last week. Um, what's going on in this chapter, in this section of this chapter, verses 9, 10, and 11, um, and all the way through to the end of the chapter is a three, three stage description of the end of Yerushalayim. And, uh, last week we, we dealt with stage one, which was the first 390 days of the siege of Yerushalayim by the Babylonians, where there was a minimal amount of food and water in the city that lasted via rationing for 390 days. And Yechezkel is told to parallel that reality, uh, something that's going to happen in the future, by doing the same thing, by rationing himself similarly with the same type of food, so he can appreciate the suffering that's going to be going on in Yerushalayim. Uh, in verse 12, which we're going to, is going to be our next point, um, we're going to have a description of what Yerushalayim was like during the last 40 days of the siege, um, when there was almost no food left. And Yechezkel is going to parallel that too, as we'll see in verse 12. And then finally, uh, not finally, but then in stage, stage three, which is verses 13 to 15, um, the book is, the chapter is going to describe when the Babylonians finally break through the walls of the city on the 10th of Tammuz. Um, remind you again that it was the 17th of Tammuz that the Romans broke through into the base of Migdosh, hence the fast day of the 17th of Tammuz. But the Babylonians actually broke through on the 10th of Tammuz. Um, and the Jews are either slaughtered or carried off into exile. And that, that will be described shortly in chapter, in verses 13 to 15. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, God, so to speak, revisits the siege of Yushalayim, describing the human scene of tragedy. Um, before all that, uh, I did have a question that was written to me by email. Uh, I just want to deal with, uh, I don't have time to go through the question. The question's got a lot of implications, uh, philosophical implications. It's um, a written, uh, the, the question comes from Erwin, Erwin Posner. And essentially the question is, do we have a right to presuppose what God is or was thinking. And obviously he brings the example of uh, Yechezkel. Yechezkel was sent to Tel Aviv. Uh, he was supposed to prophesy. He didn't do so uh, for various reasons that we've discussed in great detail. As a result of that, so to speak, God changes uh, tack and confines uh, Yechezkel to his house. Um, so that God's message can be um, received loud and clear by the Jewish people in a different way. The message is one of rebuke and a warning to do tshuva. And uh, originally that message was supposed to be delivered by Yechezkel himself inside Tel Aviv. Now the message is being delivered through silence, God's silence, the prophet's silence. The, the very fact that the prophet isn't speaking, isn't communicating with the Jewish people, is a sign to the Jewish people that God, so to speak, is rebuking them. But the question still stands, do we have a right to presume what God is or was thinking? Now, this is a very, very tricky issue. 
um, there is a, it's quite clear from the Torah that um, there are certain myths in the Torah that uh, we're not, you know, they're not designed to be understood. Uh, they're design, designed to be kept, uh, but they're not designed to be understood. Uh, the the uh, chief example among this is obviously the Zos Chukas HaTorah, the Paraduma, the law of the Paraduma. And um, it provides us with a paradox, uh, as we're told by Chazal. Now, a lot of people believe that the paradox is uh, just from the perspective of how the Paraduma works. If a person uh, becomes, has tumult, becomes impure, um, ritually, spiritually impure, uh, because he's touched a dead body, <clears throat> that is the highest form of spiritual uncleanliness, tumor. And the only way to relieve or mitigate that tumor is by uh, having the waters of the ashes of the um, of the poraduma, or the red cow, sprinkled upon it. And uh, we don't understand to any extent at all why that should be so. It doesn't really seem to make any sense. Um, why it should be that, uh, you know, a perfectly red cow, you burn it, you take the ashes, you mix it with water, and then you take it, get a Cohen, and the person that's a bit touched a dead body, um, the Cohen spritzes him with water, uh, with the ashes, it's called the Mechatos, and he becomes Tohor, and the person that's doing it, the Cohen becomes Tommy. So, you know, from a simple perspective, we're, we're presented with a paradox, and the paradox is that the person that was Tome becomes Tohar, and the person that was Tohar becomes Tome. But of course, if you analyze, and of course, we've got no real insight into why this works, and we're told that there's a paradox there. And uh, the assumption is by um, many people, although I'll show you now that the, the paradox that people think exists actually doesn't exist. Um, the paradox seems to be, uh, if you look at the example of the Paraduma, uh, the paradox seems to be, how can it be that the person who is um, Tome becomes Tahar from the, um, the, the water of the, the water and the ashes of the red cow and the person that distributes it or uh, the who gives over the remedy, pours it over, the uh, impure person becomes impure himself. So, again, the, that seems to be a paradox. But, of course, if you think about it a little more carefully, there's no paradox there at all, because we have many things in in our world um, that work exa- in exactly the same way. Um, we have in, in Judaism, quite clearly, situations where you can have something that's uh, non-kosher, and uh, something that's kosher, two two items, one kosher, one non-kosher. You can mix them together, and the person, the thing that was kosher becomes non-kosher, and the thing that was non-kosher becomes kosher. It's quite clearly seen when you shecht an animal, and uh, you have to salt it. Now, the salt is perfectly kosher. The animal that's shechted is not fit to be eaten. It's got a problem with it. What you do is you put the salt on the animal, and uh, you salt the animal, and the animal that was originally unfit to be eaten by a human being uh, for, for religious purposes, religious reasons, now becomes fit to be eaten. And the salt that was originally fit to be eaten, consumed by a human being or by a Jew, 
is now unfit. So that's not really a paradox. That's something that we quite understand. Uh, similarly, in the world we live in, quite simply, there's a few doctors here, Dr. May, Dr. Lowenthal, uh, I don't see any other doctors there, Dr. Glauber. Um, they will tell you, uh, uh, if you don't know, that uh, two people come to, to the doctor for a medical cons- consultation. So the doctor will give um, drug A to patient A and drug B to patient B. If you would give drug B to patient A, patient A would die. If you give drug A to patient B, patient B would die. You have to give the right drug to the right person. So, again, that's not a paradox. That's the paradox isn't that, oh, you know, you give, you give this, this medication to him and he gets healed. And if you give the other person's medication to him, he dies. So that, that's certainly not a paradox. When it comes to the paraduma, the paradox is where is the paradox? Where is it? We're told by Chazal there is a paradox. Well, where is it? Where is the paradox? Where is the problem? The only real problem is the same problem you have with many mitzvahs in the Torah. Uh, and the, 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 por- the problem, the paradox is, is why does this work? Why does this work? What's the mechanics behind it? What's the dynamic behind the mitzvah? And on, on many, many mitzvahs, many, many mitzvahs, we haven't got a clue what is behind God's rationale for distributing this mitzvah, for commanding this mitzvah. Uh, Shatner's is an example. Um, again, the Poradumo is a great example. Certain species of animals, again, no idea why some of them are kosher, some of them are treif. Um, the method of doing shechita, you could go on and on uh, discussing certain mitzvahs in the Torah where we haven't got the slightest clue why God, so to speak, commanded that, that something should be done in this particular fashion, not any other fashion. However, there are mitzvahs in the Torah where it's quite clear that we can find a clear, rational reason why the mitzvah is there. Uh, the Gomorrah in Erevin and Davkuf says quite clearly, if the Torah had never been given, there are certain mitzvahs in the Torah that he could have worked, a human being should have been able to work out for himself. Things that uh, were appropriate and things that weren't appropriate. It's not appropriate to kill people. People could work that out for themselves. It's not appropriate to, it's appropriate to steal from people. People could have worked that out for themselves. It's not appropriate to sleep with your friend's wife. It's not appropriate to be lazy. It's not appropriate to um, be indifferent to other people's suffering. These are all things that a human being could could quite easily rationalize and work out for himself. Um, but is that the ultimate reason why these mitzvahs were given? So... The answer to that question is no, that isn't the ultimate reason why, the, why the, these mitzvahs were given. But it's good that we've got a way of rationalizing, so to speak, to a certain extent, um, and try and get behind at least one of the reasons, even if it's only uh, part of the reason, why God instructed us in these uh, um, mitzvahs. There are mitzvahs as well in a third category, where it appears inherent in the mitzvah that the reason behind it is simple to understand. For example, there is a mitzvah of Kan Sipor, if Shiloh uh, If before you, you deal with uh, the eggs, the hatchlings, you have to shoo the mother away. Now, the implication from that is that you're supposed to learn chesed. But the Gemara says quite clearly, the Gemara Megillah, 
Gemara in other, another couple of places, and the Zohar as well, so that anyone that says that the reason why the law, the rule of Shluach HaKen was given, um, shooing the mother away, uh, if, if you believe that is Chesed, it's to teach human, humanity the reality of Chesed, that God requires uh, people to have Chesed, to have kindness, to show kindness to other creatures, then there are Epicorosid. That's heresy. So, broadly speaking, we have um, uh, mitzvahs that you can be that can be categorized really into three sections. Uh, section number one is the easiest one, where we can actually rationalize the reason. And it certainly seems, uh, as far as Chazal are concerned, that at least part of the reason is the reason that we've rationalized, like steal social reasons. No, don't steal. Don't don't uh, kill. Uh, be kind. There are certain mitzvahs on the other end where, you know, the logic behind it is completely lost on us. Uh, you know, why, why should a red cow have the ability? How should a burnt red cow have the ability to remove tumor? I mean, why, why, why can't you remove tumor, you know, with, um, you know, with an ice cream cone? Um, you know, it would just be as logical as a, a, a roasted red cow, a, a burnt red cow. And uh, Shatner's as well. What, what the heck's going on with that? Um, and that's on right, directly on the other scale. And somewhere in between, you have mitzvahs that appear to be logically based, to have some type of human rationale behind them. And uh, the reality is that Chazal tell us, no, don't believe for one second that that rationale applies to that mitzvah. So those are the three broad categories. And the question is, as Erwin puts it, uh, do we have a right to presuppose? So according to the Ramchal and to the Rambam, we have an obligation to make an effort to do chakira, um, to do an investigation as to the reason for the mitzvahs, um, and to come up with some type of rationalization. The Sefer Chinuch, by the way, uh, was written to give uh, reasons for all the mitzvahs. Um, we do have a, a, uh, uh, an obligation, uh, as I said, according to the Rambam, according to Sefer Chinuch, according to the Ramchal, according to many others, to do an investigation into everything that God says, to try and work out what God's rationale is behind either the commandment or the information that he's giving to you. Sometimes, as the Ramchal describes, Kol every, every Jew has got a responsibility to know, experience, and to be faithful to. In other words, you've got to know. Uh, the Torah says, We're not Christians after all. We're not supposed to have faith. Faith presupposes doubt. And we're not supposed to have doubt. You were shown so that you would know. Know through experience. And um, so there's certainly an element of that, um, of Chakira that we have a responsibility to seek out the mitzvahs and try and understand God's rationale behind them. Whether we can discover to any great extent what God's rationale is, is a different question. Because very often, as, as human beings, we have limited abilities to comprehend issues, so much so that, uh, you know, 99% of the physical world is still um, the rules that govern uh, 99% of the physical world are still well beyond us. We, we can't even understand, as we've discussed in this year, 
before, we can't even understand whether a light particle is a wave or a, or a, a particle. Now, you know, we just, you know, we don't even know what a photon is. The essence of what life itself, the life uh, giving power of light is, we haven't even worked out what a photon is. So, um, we're well behind the, um, we're well behind the eight ball in terms of understanding the physical world, um, that God created. Trying to get behind God's rationale, which is an even deeper level, is a, is a very difficult job indeed. However, however, a big however, we have an idea in, in Chazal, in Zohar of Tzimtzum. Now, a lot of people will tell you, even ignorant rabbis, will tell you that Simpson means that, uh, Simpson means to, uh, make smaller, to minimize, so to speak, to shrink. Let's to shrink. But what Simpson is, is that when God created the universe, so he shrank himself from his, uh, infinite terminal size, uh, slightly smaller to make room for this universe. That's what some people will say. And, um, that type of explanation shouldn't even be told to a two-year-old child because it's such nonsense. No such thing as uh, um, God minimizing himself from his infinite size and um, shrinking himself, so to speak, to make room for a universe. God doesn't need to do stuff like that. Simpson means simply this, and it's, uh, it's based on the Kabbalistic teachings of the Ari. Um, Simpson means that God... When God wants to explain something to to humanity and he wants the human being to understand it, he doesn't explain it at his own level. And uh, I'll just give you the, quickly the analogy that uh, when I was uh, teaching the Derech Hashem, maybe even six years ago, I gave this example. Um, when a chess grandmaster comes to your school and you're all a bunch of 10-year-olds and you're just learning to play chess, and the whole big thing in the school is that everybody in the school who plays chess gets a chess board and the world champion grandmaster, he plays everybody, uh, one at a, all, all at the same time. And, um, at the end of the day, he plays a game of chess against the school champion and the school champion now is his 10, he's 11, year, 11 years old. And, uh, you know, he's very naive and he's very, um, inexperienced at playing chess. Now, the chess grandmaster, the world champion, can take two tracks. Number one, he can play up to his, up to the maximum that his ability allows him to play. In which case, he'll annihilate the child, destroy the child at chess. He'll beat him in half a dozen moves. The child will learn nothing and the chess master will acclaim himself and be acclaimed as wonderful and marvelous and fantastic. But the only problem is the child learned nothing. Another thing that the child, the, the, the chess grandmaster can do is shrink his, so to speak, mitzamtzem himself, play to a level well below, far below the level he's capable of playing and play to a level slightly above that of the child. In that way, the game gets extended. The world champion's obviously going to win the game, but the game is going to take much longer. The child is going to learn new, new moves. And the child is going to learn tactics and the child is going to learn something from the grandmaster, something he would never have learned had the grandmaster played up to his potential. Something similar could be said about God when he gave the Torah. But God, if he would have given us an insight into the way he was thinking at his own level, at his own infinite level, 
the Torah, the Torah itself would have been incomprehensible, completely incomprehensible. Even the, note, the notation would have been impossible for us to deal with. God, so to speak, when he built the universe, the physical universe, and condensed, so to speak, I'm not going to, I don't think that's the best word uh, to use, but so to speak, condensed the Torah into Loshon B'nai Odom, into language that a human being could understand, or, uh, or certainly a language that a human being could try and struggle to understand. What he was doing is, was he was letting us know that we have the ability by studying the Torah and um, making ourselves familiar with the language um, and the idiosyncratic method of its construction, exactly how God, not exactly how God works, perhaps some semblance of knowledge of how God works. And the more we become familiar with the text, and the more we could become familiar with the ideas behind the text, and um, the, uh, so to speak, the hyperlinked information that is contained right across the Torah, the more familiar we become with that, um, the more familiar we become with, so to speak, God's intention. Um, and uh, um, how do you describe it? Uh, God's thinking. I think thinking is the correct word, but uh, God doesn't think in the, the way that we understand thinking. But uh, God's intention, God's kavana. And uh, so there is, uh, on the one hand, uh, ultimately, we can never get behind uh, the real reason why God does certain things uh, and why God, so to speak, arranges for certain things to happen. I mean, you know, like, we don't have to go far, so far back in history. We can just go back to the Holocaust. Um, you can, can't possibly understand God's logic behind that. Um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we can certainly take messages from events that occur to us on a personal level, a communal level, on a national level and on an international level uh, to try and work out what God's thinking was in the past. Um, and we have, of course, prophets to help us with that. It's not always that the prophets really understand it themselves uh, any more than God wants them to understand it. But we do have a responsibility to try, to try and do chakira, to try and uh, get behind what God's thinking was. Sometimes we can be successful to a certain extent, very often we can't. And uh, as human beings, it's very frustrating because um, we see events unfolding and we see tragic events unfolding and we see wonderful events unfolding. And uh, it really doesn't, doesn't make any difference which way uh, the event occurs, whether it occurs as a tragedy, whether it occurs as a great triumph. Um, you don't know so to speak, what God's rationale is behind it. And this, this is never more so, never more true than in last week's parasha. The parasha we just read, uh, even Moshe Rabbeinu, he says to God, show me. You know, now we've made friends again, like, you know, show me how you do stuff, what, what's all about. And even to Moshe Rabbeinu, the answer was, human being is unable to... um to uh, understand, I don't think understands the right word, but to to take in uh, into a limited intellect, an intellect that um, is requires categorization. Let me say that uh, our our rush, our ability to understand things needs categorization. 
Uh, we need to categorize things and put things in a box and say, this is X and this is Y. And if you add X and Y together, you get Z and you, Z's in another box somewhere else. Uh, God's knowledge doesn't work like that. And or God's rationale doesn't work like that. And God's logic doesn't work like that. So on the one hand, the answer to the question is there is a responsibility to do some sort of khakira, to come, come, come up with some sort of logical, um, rationale to why God says something, why God does something, why God did something, why God might want something to happen. Uh, and on the other hand, there's a, an under, there's an implicit understanding that at the end of the day, we can't plumb the depths to the extent where we can say for sure, yes, put my finger on a reason and say that, yeah, this is the reason why God did X. This is the reason why we should do Y. Um, and of course, this plays out very, uh, um, often in, again, you often get foolish rabbis that, uh, you know, say things like the Holocaust happened because they, you know, they, uh, they talked in shul. Uh, the Holocaust happened because of this. Uh, the base of Mishra was destroyed because of this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, this person died because of X, Y, and Z. This is just nonsense. And, uh, we should, we should, we should, we should uh, distance ourselves from that type of uh, uh, understanding. Anyone that says they know how the Holocaust or why the Holocaust occurred. And the Ture Carter said the uh, Holocaust occurred because of the Zionists. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's just like saying the Holocaust occurred because they talked in shul. How do you know? How, who told you that? Where, 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 how, what's the logical jump from six million people dying? being murdered, brutally murdered, including over a million children, to the idea of talking in shul. I mean, you know, it's, you know, mathematicians don't make leaps of, or some of them do, but uh, you would never do that in the sciences. You never make leaps of of logic like that because it's just nonsense. And uh, again, the Nature card to the same thing. The Holocaust came because of the Zionists. Really? That there's never been breakaway movements before in Jewish history. And, uh, you know, there's never been secular Jews before in Jewish history. So these things, these things, um, like the Holocaust, like the Paraduma, um, you can ponder on them, but, uh, to my mind, it's, a it's an extremely, extreme waste of time, um, to try and get behind God's ultimate logic. In, in, in trying to understand why certain events in, in, in history happened and also what God's, so to speak, what God's rationale is for wanting us to do X, Y, and Z. Um, Chazal really wants us to understand, do Chakira, certainly, but to understand that the ultimate way we have to deal with the mitzvahs and we have to deal with God is from the perspective of the mitzvahs, we're doing things because God said you should do it. And uh, we become the ultimate uh, ability, the ultimate goal of a human being is to become an Eved Hashem, is to become a servant of God. And you do what the master says. If you're a servant, you, the master t- tells you, take out the garbage. So you take out the garbage. You don't say to him, you know, why do you want me to take out the garbage? You just do as you're told. Ultimately, that's what we are. And that's what we will always remain. Um, and uh, that's all we can aspire to. Uh, Moshe was the ultimate Jew. 
and yet he remained his life. The, the greatest thing you could say about Moshe Rabbeinu is he was a servant, a servant to God. And he did as he, did as he was told. Um, and even at the point where he wants to argue with God, God said last week's parasha, Anichali, leave me alone. No, I'm not doing, I'm not doing, I'm not discussing this with you anymore. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, that was after the golden cup. And then uh, later on in his life, he wants to go into the land of Israel. God says, yeah, you know, shut up. I'm not talking, we're not discussing this again. So, uh, and the reason why, God's not prepared to discuss. Those that are learning Chabakuk uh, with me at the moment know the same story with Chabakuk. The same story there. They ask questions of God, and God says, I'm not discussing it. None of your business. I don't think the way you think. I don't do things the way you do things. You do as I tell you to do. And ultimately, that's I think that's um, that's the answer to the question. Can we and should we do Hakira? Yes, absolutely. Because it makes us better people. It makes us better people when we can see some moral light or some moral conviction within the context of a mitzvah or within the context of an action that God has taken in the past. Um, as I said, there are certain exceptions to the rule, the Holocaust being one of them. People should steer clear of them. Um, certainly secular, I'll finish off now on this issue because, you know, this can go on forever. Uh, secular thinkers are very foolish um, because they try to rationalize the ideas of the Holocaust and what happened in the Holocaust in the context of uh, their secular understanding of the world. And um, if you think about it, you know, they tell the story of uh, the um, um, the Warsaw Ghetto and, uh, you know, how amazing it was inside the Warsaw Ghetto, despite the fact that they were under tremendous pressure, uh, pressure of food, pressure from the Nazis on the outside, and uh, there was very little food, and they have, have had very little resources. So you read these books about the Holocaust and, uh, you know, they proudly tell you that uh, the people inside the ghetto um, arrange themselves to have, you know, lectures on physics and chemistry and biology and history. And they uh, had evenings of music where they used to play opera music. And, and uh, you know, it's it's looked on as a uh, a, a great sign of the the morality and the um, ability of the Jews to be defiant and to still have, you know, sessions of learning and scholarliness and uh, music and art and all this type of stuff. Um, and they point to that as, you know, marvelous, you know, something wonderful. To me, that is just a symptom of uh, uh, a misunderstanding of, you know, what's going on there because, if you think about it, um, you know, the, the people in the, the ghettos and the ghettos in Germany and, you know, they have these lectures in, in, in mathematics and philosophy and chemistry and biology and concerts and music concerts and opera and art. Who's, who's, and they're celebrating, they're celebrating culture while on the verge of extermination. And how wonderful that is. Well, is it? Is it? If you examine whose culture are they celebrating? They're celebrating the culture of the people that are trying to break into their ghetto and murder them. And I find that extremely ironic that uh, secular thinkers talk about the ghettos in that way and say how wonderful it was that the, the Jews managed to do this, that, and the other inside the ghetto and celebrate life and celebrate... But, in what way would they celebrate? What culture were they celebrating? 
There was the the Germans were the center of world culture, music, art, poetry, writing, prose, science. The very people that were the waiting outside the ghetto to come in and murder them, their culture was being celebrated by the Jews inside the ghetto, and I find that uh, staggering that people should point to that and think to themselves how wonderful it must have been. Because I just think with sadness, that's, you know, a tragedy. It's a tragedy that, uh, anyway, I hope you get my point. Um, I'm not trying to rationalize anything. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that, uh, uh, on the one hand, you have religious thinkers that say stupid things. And on the other hand, you have secular thinkers about the Holocaust that say equally stupid things. And uh, in the middle of it, you know, we don't know at all what, what went on. No, we haven't got a clue what went on, what really happened when the Romans, why the Romans were allowed to run amok and kill two million Jews. We don't really understand, which was a third of the Jewish population. And we don't really understand why the Babylonians were given the opportunity of murderous group of people who murdered a million Jews was also a third of the Jewish world Jewish population when they destroyed the first base of Egypt. We, we don't, we don't have answers to these questions. Should we be investigating it? I don't know. Um, those types of events, I don't think we should be trying to investigate. I don't think we can get, I don't think, I think you can, the only thing you can do is dig yourself a hole that you can never get out of. Whereas uh, if you're trying to understand other events in world history, um, looking back with uh, obviously rose tinted glasses, you can see God's, God's hand in certain events and why God wanted X, Y, and Z to happen. And certainly with the mitzvahs as well. Um, they fit into those kinds of categories. Some of them you can rationalize quite easily, despite knowing that the ultimate rational, your, your ultimate rationalization isn't, doesn't get to the heart of the mitzvah, but it certainly uh, at the very least scrapes the surface of it. Other mitzvahs, you've just got no, no chance of trying to understand God's motivation. And the, the same is looking at historical events. Some of them are clearly designed to make you understand on, on a, even if it's only on a superficial level, that God is standing by you. Six day war. Uh, you don't need to be a, a rocket scientist to understand that God's hand was clearly shown in the six day war. No one, no one can deny that God's hand was clearly shown in the Six-Day War, and uh, which is an event in our lifetimes, or most of our lifetimes. Uh, by the same token, uh, if you look at the Crusades and what happened during the Crusades to the villages in, in, in France and Germany, 90, 95% of the people there were from, kept the Torah, separated themselves from their Christian pagan neighbours, it was the home of the Rishonim, it was the home of Rashi, it was the home of the Bali Totsus, almost completely wiped out by Christian Catholic marauders, murderers. Try and explain that. So you can't. So again, certain areas of Judaism, um, Chakira investigation, and I'm talking about proper intellectual investigation, um, can yield to a certain extent, results, uh, as can investigation into the reasons for some of the mitzvahs. Can we reveal some um, some uh, results, certainly on the surface? Trying to understand certain other events or certain other mitzvahs is a fool's, is a fool's errand. Um, 
And uh, okay, that's. Uh, I hope that, to a certain extent, satisfies you, um, uh, Erwin, um, in uh, my analysis of uh, trying to understand God's thinking. Um, but uh, and I think we've spent enough time on that. I want to um, move Thank forward. You. Uh, you're welcome. Okay, so um, before we deal with sections 30, with verses 13 to 15, which is the actual going into exile, uh, just a few extra on um, verse 12, of course, which was where we're up to. Um, uh, just a couple of extra points on the last three verses that we did last week, verses 9 to 11. Um, verse 10 said that the food in Yerushalayim was rationed tochlen of a mishka. Rationing was done um, that uh, rationing was so tight that they only ate once a day. And similarly, in the in verse 11, discusses the water rationing. That uh, the water rationing was shishis ahin, was a sixth of a hin every day for each person. The equivalent of about one liter a day, which really is a bare minimum and less so in uh, the summer months. Um, and that's the way they live for 390 days of a 430-day siege um, around Yerushalayim, which we described as the, the makeup of the 390-day uh, siege. Um, but now, um, in the last 40 days of the siege, um, or to commemorate the last, or not even to commemorate, to fore, foreshadow the last 40 days of the siege, which hasn't taken effect yet from Yechezkel's perspective, we have verse 12. Um, and in verse 12, it says, this is the last 40 days of the siege of Yerushalayim and the last 40 days of Yechezkel's, so to speak, confinement and Russian diet. He said, so the verse says, during the last 40 days, you should eat barley cake. Um, is barley cake, which is uh, animal food. Uh, but he, um, uh, and you should bake it on human excrement. So use human excrement as the food, as the fuel. Uh, as fuel before their eyes. Bake it as fuel before their eyes. That's how you should bake it. So um, here we have a description. Let me just uh, again put people on mute. Um, so Again, we have a description of um, something that's going on in Yerushalayim, the last 40 days of the siege. And again, the Abarbanel gives you uh, just a very brief insight into um, what was going on, or what will go from the perspective of Yechetzel that hasn't happened yet. But he's, he's, he's getting a, a, a preview of forthcoming attractions in Yerushalayim. He says, But Omro, oh, God tells Yechetzel again, but Uba Saorim Tochlena. At the end of the siege, by the time the siege had lasted 390 days in Yerushalayim, the only thing left to eat was uh, animal fodder, barley, which the uh, inhabitants of the city would end up eating as barley bread, uh, the food normally used to feed animals. Um, and... Um, Bahodiu says about and tell you furthermore, also that uh, by the time the last 40 days of the siege of Yerushalayim arrived, there'd be no wood 
that run out of fuel to cook anything, because they weren't able to exit the city, obviously. The city was completely in just in the, uh, under siege. To cut down any wood, it was impossible. Um, so the only thing left, the only thing left they had to, um, or it seems the only thing left they had to use for, as uh, fuel was human excrement. Using uh, this excrement would be the only way to make this bread. Um, that was really, the bread's only fit for animals. And, uh, you know, it's cooked on uh, excrement, so maybe even the animals wouldn't touch it. But that's all the food that would be left um, in Yerushalayim. And that's what Yechezkel is told to do, to foreshadow that, to suffer that, to take that to heart. Um, so that uh, the presumption is that, so that when he get, finally does get to speak to the Jewish people, he can tell them what's coming. And not only tell them what's coming, you can tell them, listen, uh, I've not even, not only been told what's coming, I've experienced what's coming. Um, whether it's in prof- a prophetic vision, this, this is all taking place in a prophetic vision as most commentators see it, uh, or it's actually happening over a period of 430 days. It really makes no difference because whichever way you look at it, whichever way you cut and paste it, uh, Yechezkel is experiencing it. And when he wakes up either from the prophetic dream or it's the end of the 430 days that he's inside his house, it feels to him like it actually happened, even if it was only a prophetic vision. He actually has the emotion and the memory of it actually happening to him. Um, that's why one of the reasons why pro- prophecy is put into the imagination rather than, in, than into the intellect. Oh, it's a different issue. Anyway, now in verses 13 to 15, um, God describes to Yechezkel, makes him aware of the transition. So we've had what, what happened at the first start of the, the start of the siege, the first 390 days of the siege. We had, we've had an indication in verse 12, what was done, what's going on in the last 40 days of the siege. Now in verses 13 to 15, God describes to Yechezkel what's going to be the, the, uh, what's going to be the transition from siege to exile. Of the Jewish people. And just bear in mind that, uh, again, I mention this almost every year, the southern kingdom, um, from the time that David Amel conquered Yushalayim, uh, Yushalayim had never been conquered. And, uh, you're talking a very long period of time, uh, 450 years. And, um, under those circumstances, when something lasts for 450 years, so you, you start to believe that it can never end. And you, you just can't believe it. No one can believe that the Soviet Union could fall, right? Somebody told you in 1962, 1963, or 19, the mid-1970s, when Brezhnev went to the UN and banged his shoe on the table of the UN, and you told, t- telling me, you know, in 25 years, the, the words USSR won't, won't be in the, in the dictionary anymore. You, you put them in a lunatic asylum. So the same way that people feel about the United States. The United States is 250 years old, right? So, of course, the United States, an empire, superpower, can never disappear. The, the truth of history is that they all disappear, right? They all disappear. The Assyrians disappeared, the Babylonians disappeared, the Persians disappeared, the Greeks disappeared, the Romans disappeared, the Spanish Empire 
disappeared. All the great empires, they've got a shelf life. And that's just the way history is. Hold on, who's written this note here? Larry Lone, just a thought. If Yechezkel is locked up in his house for 230 days, and isn't sharing the prophecy with the people, then the people are losing 430 days, which the people might have had the extra time to do tshuva. And they heard the message early, had the yes, yes, you're quite right. And this is something that goes back to what Irwin says, Larry. Um, God always gets what he wants, so to speak. God wants the Jewish people rebuked. The fact that, that Yechezkel's incommunicado should be enough of a rebuke to the Jewish people. But the whole point of the first start of the start of the book was that the Jewish people had sinned and God nevertheless allowed them to still have a prophet, to hear from him. Now he's not even allowing them to hear from the, the prophet, which is an even greater rebuke. The message, the message that they should be learning from that is, you know, how is it possible? How is it possible that God's not allowing that? Well, let's think about it. Why isn't God allowing a prophet to come? God's not allowing a prophet to come because we must be doing something wrong, which is an even greater rebuke than a prophecy itself. Just excuse me for one second. Already time for Purim spiel. Is it uh, already time for Purim spieling? The kids at the door doing Purim spiels. Isn't it a bit early yet? Don't they know it's a, a leap year? All right. Um, where was I? Yeah. So, um, so I think this is this is the message we discussed this. Uh, I think while you were away as well, that uh, this is a, a rebuke, but it could be a prophetic vision, right? And this 430 days is going to last one day, and then he's going to come out the house and uh, explain it to them. Various ways of understanding it. But um, I don't know. Can somebody just remind me what? Yeah, so uh, this idea of empire, this idea of nothing nothing changing. Um, the Jewish people have been in Yerushalayim for 450 years. So, so of course, nothing's going to ever change that, right? Nothing's going to ever change. Yeah. But the reality of history is that all empires die. All countries fail, f- fade. Some fade forever. Um some make a limited comeback. Um, but the British Empire, right? The British Empire. The sun never set on the British Empire. As the commentator said, God never allowed it to set on the British Empire because God didn't trust the British in the dark. And uh, the reality of history is no one should trust the British for anything, right? Especially where Jews are concerned. Absolute disgrace. The disgrace of the Jewish, of the British towards uh, the land of Israel. And to the Jewish people, particularly after the Holocaust, is uh, is a is a memorial to the demise of uh, the British Empire and the rape, the absolute rape. You know, we didn't learn this in school. We have to learn this outside of Britain because they don't tell you how Britain raped every country they went to: India, Pakistan, or the India, the subcontinent, Cyprus, Palestine, everywhere they went. They raped and pillaged everything they could, all the assets, and uh, you know, just the nature of empire. But empires fall, so the the Jewish people couldn't understand it. They didn't really understand this idea of transition from empire, which they had. They had a tradition of empire under the days of King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, uh, even through the years of Yehoshaphat, 
time of Yechez, of Chizkiyahu, which was only 150 years earlier, uh, a huge empire, a huge army, extremely affluent society, and now it's all gone, and it's very hard to deal with that. So uh, God says to Yechez, in verse 13, Vayoma, Hashem, just like in the last 40 days of the siege, so will the children of Israel eat their bread unclean, Tomei, among the nations, where I shall drive them, where I will exile them to. And of course, God is describing to Yechezkel that just as the Jews will be able to eat the most meager rations during the last days of the siege of Yerushalayim, that will also be the life and conditions they will have to endure when they are exiled in Babylonia, at least at the start of the exile. But God, uh, in this verse, adds an extra negative dimension to life in the exile. Not only will there, there be food shortages, obviously, um, when you're driven into exile by uh, uh, blood, bloodthirsty Babylonians, um, who, you know, they, they really were the scum of the earth. Um, They'll have to eat bread made from animal feed, barley, and and cooked in fuel uh, of hu- using human excrement. But there's an added uh, negative here, that the food and bread they'll be forced to eat will be tome bagoyim, God adds. It'll be tome, impure among the nations, tome bagoyim. So exactly what this means, um, there's various opinions here exactly what it means, Tomei Bagoyim, but it, I, I, I think it boils down really to the same thing. I'll give you the first explanation. It's from a Gomorrah in Sota. Um, the Gomorrah in Sota on Daftalad says, don't take the word Tomei literally in this verse. It doesn't literally mean Tomei in the sense that a dead body is Tomei or that uh, somebody that has a, a, a seminal emission or a woman that's uh, Nido is Tomei. That doesn't mean that type of t- Tomei. Not that type of tumor, spiritual tumor. The Gemara says in the name of Rabbi Vol, anyone who eats bread without wipe, wiping his hands or the ability to wipe his hands and dry his hands after washing them causes the bread to become repulsive. It's considered as if he were eating impure tome bread. Since, uh, and he quotes our possible, they'll eat it tome, like the goyim. They'll eat their breads in, in an impure manner. Like the goy, not necessarily that the bread will, won't be kosher, but they'll eat it like the the um, they'll eat it. Mm. One second, you can find evidence of the British rape of countries in their vast empire in the British Museum. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that. Unfortunately, I've been there. Anyway, I'm not. I don't want anyone to get the horrible impression that I'm a socialist. I, I'm just. I just. Uh, uh, you know, I find uh, socialism as mor- morally repulsive as uh, what the British did to uh, everywhere they went. I think the idea of socialism is as, as morally repulsive as that as well. But um, um, and certainly Judaism doesn't uh, d- d- has got no no truck at all with any type of socialist uh, ideology. But um, um, back to the issue at hand, the, the Gemara there says. Um, that uh, when when the, the Gemara is saying that so when the, when God says to Yecheskel they'll be eating bread tome like bagoyim, it doesn't mean that bread will be tray tray for in any or not kosher in any way. Um, but uh, 
the warning from the Gemara is not about the nature of the non-Jewish bread being tome, but rather that the Jews in exile will adopt the uncivilized customs of the Babylonians. And the, uh, the way the Babylonians used to eat, they didn't used to wash their hands, uh, and they used to tear the food up with their hands and feed it into their mouths. And, uh, you know, they had terrible, they had repulsive, uh, uh, that wasn't the worst thing about them, but they had, apart from everything else to negative to say about them, they had, had a terrible table manners, right? You wouldn't want to have taken them home to Mammy for a Friday night meal because, uh, you know, my friend, the Babylonian, so he'll just grab the food off the middle of the table, as you see in those films, you know, from the Middle Ages and grab the meat and pull it and eat it with his hands. And so that's what, that's what, uh, that's what the positive, that's what the Gomorrah is saying here. The Gomorrah is saying that, uh, um, when the Jews go into exile, they'll adopt the uh, the uh, inappropriate, uncivilized customs of the Babylonians, which eventually will lead to them assimilating into their culture. That's what it means, Tomei Bagoyim, that uh, the bread will be Tomei Bagoyim. It might not be non-kosher, but uh, the way they consume it and the way they, the mannerisms, the way they eat, the the customs that they will adopt inside Babylonia will mean that it's Tomei Bagoyim. It's not, it's Tome by induction, Tome by temperament, um, Tome by culture. And we find this with every exile that the Jewish people went, have been into. You know, uh, I look around the table here and, uh, you know, uh, most people here are uh, from the diaspora to a certain extent. So there are a few people with Jewish names, but uh, most people not. So we've got Michelle, we've got a Ralph and a Stanley and a Myra and a Larry and a Bernard and a Marvin and a Harry and a Rob. And these are all Goishka name. What are we doing with Goishka name? What's that all about? And, uh, you know, I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you the way it is. You know, even the Babylonian exile, look in the Gemara. Looking in the Gemara, so you look in the Gemara, and you'll see that uh, half the Amoraim have got uh, Babylonian names. And you look at uh, uh, something much closer to this period in history as well. We know that, uh, you know, in 75 years' time, or 76 years' time, uh, Cyrus is going to tell the Jews, going to give Jews the Jews permission to leave and go back to the land of Israel. And the Babylonian exile is going to be over. And guess who, what one of the leaders is going to be? <clears throat> he isn't going to be the one that builds the base of Migdosh, but he's the one that's going to go back and he's going to be the leader of the Jewish people. Who's that? He's going to introduce special Takonas. He's going to introduce Laning. He's going to be the uh, number one man in the land of Israel when the second base of Migdosh is built. His name's Ezra. Ezra Hasofa. But Ezra's not a Jewish name. You know, we call people Ezra today, but you can, there's a clear clue in the name. Ezra is spelled with an Aleph. Or almost every name that finishes off with an Aleph is not a Hebrew name. Hebrew names finish with a hey, not with an Aleph. Ezra is a, um, Ezra is a Babylonian name. What was his Hebrew name? And he would $50,000. Who knows what uh, Ezra's real name was? See, this is something, uh, well, anyone? Eliezer. No, 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 no. Ezra, Ezra, Ezra Hasofa. Ezra Hasofa that came back in the year 350, at uh, the time when the base of Midrash was under construction. And he took the people out in the street, taught them how to lane. Ezra, what's his name? 
No, no. Azaria. His name was Azaria. Hence his his great 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 um, grandson was um, uh, Eloza, Rabbi Eloza ben Azaria, uh, who appears in the Haggadah from the family of Ezra. So we adopt these names, and this is what so the Gemara is saying is a symptom of Tomei Bagoyim. It doesn't literally mean your food is Tomei, it means, or your food is Shreif, or anything like that, but you become infected, so to speak, with the culture that you um, go into. And you adopt the uh, mannerisms and the customs of the people you become involved with. And uh, that's what it means, Tomei Bagoyim. That's one explanation. The second explanation is a little bit more uh, deep, is a little deeper, uh, and that comes from the Tanchuma, the Medrash Tanchuma in Vayera, uh, which we'll deal with in Mitz Hashem next week, where the Gemara there says the word Tomei literally. It, it literally means Tomei, that when the Jews went into Babylonia, they started eating. They weren't concerned about Tum and Tahara, about purity and impurity. They weren't concerned. They very quickly, uh, they lost the, um, the, um, the drive to keep kosher properly. And, uh, anyway, that, that, that's the second explanation. And we'll deal with that next week. That comes from the Medrash. And, um, and then we'll deal with possibly the most difficult verse in the whole chapter. And there's been difficult verses in this chapter, but possibly the most difficult, um, verse in the whole chapter, which is, uh, verse 14, which gets to the heart of uh, a question that's been posed to me recently so many times, uh, the question of chumras. Is it appropriate to have chumras in your life? <clears throat> so many people have got chumras, right? A chumra this, chumra that, chumra the other. Is that appropriate? Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that adding on to the Torah inappropriately? Or is that something that is uh, acceptable under certain circumstances? So what we're going to see in verse 14 is Yechesel talking about his chumras. So, but, uh, we still got uh, a little bit of work to do on verse 13. Uh, a second explanation on Tomei Bagoyim, that the Jews are going to eat. When they go into exile, they're going to eat food, terrible food, terrible rations, barley, animal fodder, cooked in, uh, so far, cooked in, uh, using the fuel of human excrement. And, uh, it's going to be Tomei Bagoyim and uh, exactly what that means. So we'll have to look at the book of Daniel to try and understand that. And that will be next week's, the start of next week's year. And as I said, then we'll move on to verse 14, which is extremely complex. And uh, we'll take it from there. Anyway, now's the time to ask questions. Anything apart from um, you know, the British Empire. And <laughs> and uh, I was really only half joking when I said my stuff about the British. It really is true. Uh, they really were, you know, horrendous. Not only the way they treated the Jews, but the way they treated everybody. Uh, as sub, you know, really, you know, not Thank British. You. Okay, anybody, anybody got any questions on what we discussed today? Certainly on the first part of the uh, shear, which really wasn't planned. It was really um, almost, no one say off the cuff, but it was mostly off the cuff. And dealt with issues that really go to the very heart of how we should be looking at God and how God, so to, so to speak, interacts with the world. So I'm happy to take questions. Um, whoever's got a question, now's the time. Silence. Silence is golden. 
The silver screen, as I can see you all out there, it's a silver screen, um, but the silence is golden. Rob's got no questions. Rob's Rob's uh, at peace with himself because he comes to my Christianity shit. So he knows that, uh, you know, as long as it's not, as long as I don't mention Christianity, everything's fine in this shit. Um, okay, that's it. Great. No questions. Um, David Taylor. I was very sad to watch yesterday. Very, very it sad. So, it was terrible. I'm sorry we messed up. Sorry, well, very, 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 we'll have to, I, I'm going to have to have a spit of chat to you about all that stuff. That's when very we disappointing. When we got very, to very. Tool, when we got to all, I thought we were going to smash him. But we, uh, we need, we need to talk about the week coming up. We're going to have to have a very serious chat, you and I. Um, in any, in any event, can, uh, can you by check, the way, can, can you check uh, my question? Can you check my question? Sure. What's your question? Uh, just to paraphrase, paraphrase what you said earlier on, that you, it's healthy to have Chakira. Yes, right. very healthy. Very healthy. Uh, and faith is for Christians. Is that what you said? All Absolutely. Right. Faith presupposes doubt. We're not, we're not, we're not built to have doubt. Yeah. Built so to I, I just, I just felt there's some kind of contradiction, uh, between what we learned yesterday to have a cook that, uh, you know, you, you live by, you live by your faith. We haven't come on. We haven't delved into that yet properly. We've only just scraped the surface of what that means. So. Um, tomorrow morning, I'm really going to get into, uh, Sadiq Emunoso Yichia, that a, uh, a Sadiq, uh, th- uh li- only lives through faithfulness. So we're going to, we're going we're, we're to deal with that in great detail tomorrow morning, please, Carl. Uh, okay. I just want to, I just want to make, yeah, okay. So, um, Thanks. I just want to make one further point to, um, the Scots among you. I don't include the Scot when I criticize the, I say the British. I don't mean the Scots. The Scots are great. Um, you know, they're really wonderful people and, uh, very unlike the British. Right. Uh, and they should be given, they should get devolved powers as soon as possible, completely devolved from Westminster. Yes. Anybody else? Viva la Republic, by the way. Get rid of the monarchy and let's have a republic. Right. Anyone, anyone with any other questions to the communists sitting here <laughs> or the revolutionary? Uh, okay. If that's it, great. I'll see you all next week and, uh, Cold Tuff, and I hope you enjoyed the shear and, uh, I'm sorry about all the philosophy that started it off, but, uh, I have to answer these questions. Um, and I'll see you all, please God, next week. Same time, same place in health and happiness. Have a great week. Shavuot Tov and, uh, see, see you then. Cold Tuff. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye.